It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, the broadcaster, Adi Oladipo, and Seb Stafford-Bloor of Tifo Football. News just in, Nuno Espirito Santo has left Spurs after only 17 matches as manager. It's clearly the sacking season, with managers under extreme pressure. Last week, it was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Next week... It could be Dean Smith. Now, this week, European football takes centre stage, but there's certainly likely to be more changes in the international break. Any surprise that Nuno's the first to go, Seb? Yeah, yeah. I think what you'll hear a little bit of in the coming days is, well, it's very, very early. I happen to believe that if something isn't working, there isn't a lot of point in persisting with it. Nuno has looked quite jaded since he arrived at Spurs. I think he might have done well to sort of to do the Guardiola thing of going off for a, a year-long sabbatical and you know maybe playing chess with a couple of former grandmasters, that kind of thing, just to to rejuvenate, especially you know a project which has been egging for some time. I don't want to sound too old man about this, but I think as I get older, I think I appreciate the humanity of this situation a little bit more. And I, I think looking back when I was younger, I didn't really understand that these are people at the center of this, the people with families and, and children and you're under enormous strain and great focus. And I, was, I, was, I wasn't at the game over the weekend, but I, I watched the game on television, of course, and it was very difficult to see Nono in those final minutes with a hostility from the crowd, which, let's be fair, has been bred by people well above him. Tottenham have been rotting from the head for a long time. They've made some terrible decisions on the pitch, off the pitch. The culture at the club has seemed let's put it, let's say not right for a very long time. And he was in the firing line. And I think it's the right decision because I think the longer this went on, the more personal it was going to become. And it's very, very difficult to watch somebody go through that. And you can talk about sort of needing time and you can talk about the, the entitlement to a little bit of patience. But at the end of the day, the modern game is such that teams, certain teams within Europe need that European revenue. You either need to finish within the top six, top four, top eight now, I guess, or you face a three-year, four-year readjustment to your business plan. And I hate to use a word or phrase like business plan in a footballing context, but that's just the reality. Let's be clear, though. Nunes lost his job, but he certainly shouldn't be the only person 
he's not responsible for this situation. He's just somebody that hasn't been able to adjust it or he hasn't, he hasn't been able to apply enough shine to the situation at Tottenham. So we're rearranging deck chairs on, an, on a sinking ship to a certain extent, but I, I don't think his position was tenable anymore. Mm. The club has, has released a pretty and typically anodyne statement talking about you know, relieving Nuno and his staff of, of their roles. They talk about Nuno being a true gentleman. He'll always be welcome here. Want to thank him and his coaching staff. Wish them well for the future. It ends with a, a very cold line, basically. A further coaching update will follow in due course. So, Addy, what names will be mentioned in dispatches for the new Tottenham manager? Names that probably won't want the job, if we're brutally honest. <laughs> um, let's be honest, Nuno Espirito Santo was, what, fifth, sixth, seventh choice, eighth, ninth, depending who you ask. A lot of managers have turned this job down just because when they have the conversation with Daniel Levy, they don't almost... I guess they perceive it as, as an impossible job right now. You've got players that don't want to be at the club. You've got players that maybe aren't good enough in some Tottenham fans' eyes to be at the club. Your, your top striker and your best player for the, the best part of the last seven, eight years wants to leave. It's a difficult job to take. Tottenham are a fantastic club. I mean, you go to that stadium and it's, um, it honestly is probably the best stadium in Europe. It, it really is. The Tottenham fans are fantastic as well. But this is a far cry from the Tottenham team that got to the Champions League final a couple of years back. Uh, this is a far cry from the Tottenham team that used to play absolutely fantastic football under Pochettino. That wasn't deemed good enough at the time by Daniel Levy. And here we are now, a club that went through Jose Mourinho, uh, young Ryan Mason, and now a fifth choice manager. I do think it's a great job to have. I, I really do. I, I would love to see a, a young manager here that plays progressive and exciting football like your grand pot will be given a chance I know he's doing a fantastic job at Brighton and he might like the job he's doing at Brighton and you know forgive me Brighton fans for mentioning his name but I do think he's doing a fantastic job you've got Eddie Howe that hasn't had a job since Bournemouth maybe it's too big a job for him the likes of Sean Dyche who I, I always call the pound for pound king of managerial <laughs> positions in the Premier League has no money to spend but for some reason always gets a job done but look it, it was always going to be a tough job for Nuno when your best player is is lacking in confidence and has only scored one Premier League goal, Son isn't doing what he's done for the last couple of seasons. He's tried to mix it up in midfield, bringing Deli Ali back in. He hasn't performed. Eric Dyer going back in defence, and I just don't think he is commanding as he once was. It's it, it's it was such a difficult job, and it's a sad way it ended. It started well, almost under false pretense, really. That, that this is a Tottenham team that were top of the table after three games. Yeah, it was always going to end this way just because he wasn't what the fans wanted. He probably wasn't what the club wanted. Look, Nuno will be okay. I'm with Seb. Go away now. Play a bit of chess. He'll, he'll get a good job again because yeah. people will remember what he done with that Wolves side. Can I can I jump in, guys? Because I, I have a concern as, uh, and I'm, I think I'm speaking broadly for Tottenham fans when I say this. Jose Mourinho, Gennaro Gattuso, Nuno Espirito Santo all represented by the same agent. Now, that is one reality of the modern game too, because George Mendes is a very, very powerful man and he, can, he controls a lot of the, the footballing environment. What concerns me is the lack of original thinking. I understand one of the realities of the game, which is intolerable, but we have to accept, is that sporting directors, chairmen, people who control top flight football clubs, they deal with people they know, they deal with people they trust, and the market is dependent on these little dependencies and what, how you want to turn fine but if you want actual change you do have to think outside the box you can't just call a friendly agent and say well do you have you got a guy for us 
because that puts fans' backs up. You know, if you look at some of the players that have come to Tottenham, particularly on loan over the last couple of years, it's a very poor use of money. I wouldn't say that um, Gerson Fernandes or Carlos Vinicius was ever good enough to play for Tottenham. Matt Doherty was a good Premier League player at one point, £15 million transfer. I, I don't, it's very hard to defend that. It's a very poor decision. So I would like to see as a fan, forget the, forget the writer journalist side of things, as a fan, just a little bit more, a little bit more breadth to the process. I don't want to see another Mendes client rolling through the door and give it a go for 18 months. You have to, you have to have a proper strategy. You have to map things out in two, three, four year cycles. If you want to compete, if you don't have a sovereign wealth fund, you don't have an oligarch, this is what you have to do. You cannot just sit in a holding pattern and wait for the other teams to disappear over the horizon. You have to, you have to place faith in a Pochettino type manager and put trust in what they're able to do. And and that's, I mean, you know, having aspiration is almost kind of like a tax on my own stupidity, maybe, or my naivety. But <laughs> that would be my hope because it's you need fans invested at this point in Tottenham's future. You need to make a gesture that appeases people. You cannot make another bad decision because it's hostile. Getting rid of Nuno changes that for a couple of weeks. If it continues to go wrong, it's going to get nastier and nastier and nastier. And nobody wins in that scenario. Yeah, well, certainly the the um, conference tie against Vitesse on Thursday was really going to be ugly if they didn't do anything. And I suppose, you know, it is a fact of life in modern football that other clients of, of uh, Jorge Mendes are being mentioned. Uh, Sergio Concesao, Paulo Fonseca. It all comes down in, in, in football. Well, actually, in any business, Addy, get the big decisions right, be that a manager or the big recruitment decision. Now, I know you've got a view on this, Seb, but I'd like to ask Addy. Harry Kane, you mentioned Harry Kane earlier on. Turning down around about $120 for Harry Kane, is that a mistake of unprecedented proportions in hindsight? Yeah, not even in hindsight, Mike. In, in foresight, I think it was a mistake indeed. It's a huge amount of money for, yes, a fantastic player, but I think a fantastic player that has started to slow down, a fantastic player that's had his injury history that we all know about in the last sort of four or five years. Look, can still continue to score goals and will assist as well. But, I mean, it's a lot of money and it's a lot of money that you can rebuild with. I think we've seen teams do it over the years. I remember when Liverpool sold Coutinho and that seemed to be the biggest mistake in the world and all of a sudden, Alisson and Van Dijk popped up. If you've got a good sporting director and a good manager, you can look and and use that money wisely. I, 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 I like Harry Kane a lot, but again, it's a huge amount of money. What I will say though, almost to defend it, is you have seen players in the past want to leave clubs and and it doesn't work, they still knuckle down, you still get a good season out of them. Luis Suarez, when he wanted to leave Liverpool, you got one more season before that Barcelona move and, and he performed to such a high level. We, we have seen it, Van Persie, before he left Arsenal to go United. I would expect a, a lot more from Harry Kane. He clearly isn't happy. Maybe it's the, the way in which he's been asked to play by Nuno, but you still expect more than one goal in the Premier League this season from what is, and everyone tells me, one of the best number nines in the world. But yeah, it's money they should have snapped his hand off to get. I, I sometimes feel like Daniel Levy plays poker with this and I almost feel like he thought Man City were going to come in with 150 million and he expected that to happen and that didn't happen. And look, he'd be sitting now because he looks at these players as assets. Let's be honest, that's, he doesn't really look at them as footballers. And as an asset, 
Harry Kane, unfortunately, is a dwindling asset. He's no, he's not going to be worth anywhere near 120 million in the summer, or even in January. So, as an asset and as a businessman, he's failed. He's clearly failed in that decision. But yeah, look, it's money that they should have snapped. I would have personally driven him to to City myself for that kind of money, free of charge as well. So yeah, it's a big mistake, and I think it's one they're going to regret. Would you have been in the back seat, Seb? No, and it's it's really got nothing to do with Kane or Kane's value. My problem is is that. The upside is it's a fabulous amount of money. What's the point of having a lot of money when your recruiting isn't very good? In my 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 perspective on it is that well, you could stay with the world class player who at some point his ego is going to kick in because it's Harry Kane and Harry Kane is driven and this is who he is as a footballer. His performances are of a poor stand at the moment, but I don't expect that to continue for much longer. The, the trouble is is that. If with that, say, say you got 150 million pounds for him. First problem is that every every club in the world knows how much money you've got sitting in your back pocket. You can't do, you can't negotiate effectively ever. The second thing is that without Harry Kane in that side, if you're another, if you're another footballer, your impression of what Tottenham are and where they're going changes dramatically. You're thinking, well, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a if I'm a, a player at Kane's level or even at the level below, you think, I'm not sure I want to sign up for three years at Spurs. Certainly not if you're 26, 27 and you're in your prime. And so what you end up doing is selling a world-class player, because he is that, you then overpay for players of a lesser standard. And then the other thing, unfortunately, is that beyond the recruiting, if you, if you, the other, the other defense I've heard of this is, well, you know, you can, you can, you can buy young, you can speculate and you can, you can sign a, a batch of 20, 30 million pound players. Okay, you can do that, but you've got to have the coaching infrastructure which suits that too. And the problem for Spurs is that they used to have that. If you gave Pochettino a 20 million pound, you know, 20 year old fullback, he'd create something great out of it, I have no doubt. But the things that have followed, you're kidding me. Like, I mean, it, it just, it's, it's the road to mediocrity. And you could argue that Spurs have already, pass through those city gates already unfortunately but it's it's a it becomes this doom cycle and it's not that I don't appreciate the other side of the argument it's just that it assumes Tottenham are better at these behind the scenes things than they really are or, or that their, their recent track record suggests it's just they're not built to perform to a high standard Liverpool can get away with it because Liverpool did things like that really well. They had a great coach. They had a great recruiting department. They had an excellent, astute director of football. Spurs, no, not at the moment. Like if you look at their performance <laughs> in transfer market, you're not giving you're not giving these people 150 million pounds expecting a good return on that. Yeah, I suppose you know, we've we've gone over Tottenham's shortcomings. But we also need to contextualise them, don't we, Addy, in the case of, of Manchester United, who bought Ole Gunnar Solskjaer some time, at least, on Saturday. The pressure won't ease on him. There's no respite. They're in Bergamo for the return leg against Atalanta on Tuesday. How far will the bunker mentality take him, do you think, and Manchester United? No idea, Mike. Just because every time you think he's in trouble, for some reason, he finds a way of getting himself out of it. You know, you, you kind of refer back to that game against Istanbul, Basak Shahir, where they got knocked out of the Champions League. And you're thinking, OK, that's it now. A trip to Goodison Park, which shouldn't be easy at the time under Carlo Angelotti. And he found a way to win. Every single time you think he's in trouble, Oli gets a result. And you have to give him credit for that. A lot of people will say it's the individuals that are or the star players that are getting him out of trouble, well, I will give him some credit for the switch in formation 
against Spurs on the weekend. Yes, Spurs, and we know Spurs aren't the greatest team in the world right now, but he still tried something that a lot of fans have been crying out for. Let's let's see Ronaldo and Cavani up front, the intelligence, the, the movement. You know, two players are on the same wavelength. Varane coming back in midfield. And he's persistent to stick with McTominay and Fred. He, he has this, he, he continually sticks with them. And I, I will give him credit for it. I think Varane coming back brings assurance to a backline that's looked jaded at times. I think Luke Shaw's looked tired and you can understand why from the Euro exploits and Harry Maguire still looks a bit unfit for me, but it, I will give Oli credit for, again, being able to dig out the results. It's, it's never going to be easy. This is a manager that wasn't deemed good enough for Cardiff six years ago, now managing the biggest club in world football. We all know his shortcomings, but what he seems to have is a mentality to kind of sort of put an arm around a player. The players will work for him. They feel their backs up against the wall and they will they will work. But I'm not quite sure with, with Oli. Opposing fans will say, keep him in the job, give him a 10-year contract because they're still not sure about him. But I, I think every time, again, he needs a result, he gets one. Will he get one against Atalanta? I'm not quite sure. This is a Gasparini side that do play good football. Defensively, sometimes you do worry about them, but they do score a lot of goals. Maybe not so this season. They do miss Muriel, obviously their top scorer last season. But it's an Atalanta side that are hit and miss for me. But then in saying that, it's a Man United side that are hit and miss as well. So it should be a fantastic game. That's one thing we can guarantee. Yeah, certainly. Do you expect any changes in approach or in personnel on Tuesday night, Seb? Yeah, I think so, Mike, because one of the um, overarching issues at United is they've got too much talent in too many forward positions. So... You know that that sort of that that late when they're in the last game against Atlanta gives them a little bit of uh, latitude in the group, and you have to because with some with, in some places in some teams having a, a big squad it isn't such an issue. When you're talking about Man United and you're talking about the kind of the caliber of footballer and the size of ego that Manchester United typically deal with, you have to do a little bit of rotation just to keep everybody happy because obviously one of the other challenges Ole faces is is having to manage disgruntled players like you can't he can't be stuck between a hostile press and a frustrated fan base and internal difficulties between you know 50 to 100 million pound footballers that's a very very difficult place to be in so I don't think he has a choice but to rotate a little bit mm. Ronaldo the Ronaldo factor Addy you know you mentioned his his being on the same wavelength with Cavani you know, we talk, and it's become a cliche, isn't it? He is the ultimate big occasion player, isn't he? Yeah, he is, and he he enjoys it as well. It's almost like he likes his back up against the wall. He likes people to doubt him, and then it's almost a case of, okay, let me quickly remind you of what I'm capable of doing. Uh, that was a fantastic goal against Tottenham. He span off the defender and just oh, volleyed yeah, goodness, it. Yes. It, was, yeah. it, was, it was stunning. It, it really was. And even his disallowed goal against Liverpool, it almost put... Trent Alexander-Arnold on skates and then bent it past Allison. I mean, that that's what he's capable of. And look, for, for what people say in terms of, you know, maybe the balance is wrong with him playing, he's doing his job. He's got seven goals in 10 games. That That's what he's been brought to do is to score goals and he's doing that. Oli has to find a way of getting the other players to work in and around him. Yes, he hasn't got the, the legs of peak Ronaldo at Real Madrid where he used to run past players, but... What he can do is scoring. You mentioned that last-minute winner against Atalanta. That's exactly what Ronaldo does. They're always going to be dangerous. and I don't think they are consistent enough to really put up a challenge in the Premier League. But in Europe, they're always going to be dangerous because of Ronaldo and, and Cavani and Bruno. And with Bruno as well, I always thought when Ronaldo came in, it kind of 
left Bruno in the shadow a bit. I think we're starting to see slowly but surely now the Bruno Fernandes that was so exciting when he came, the Bruno Fernandes that everyone thought was as good as Kevin De Bruyne last season. But look, if you've got Cristiano Ronaldo in your team, you've got a match win of epic proportions and he might be 36, but we all know physically he looks like he's 26 and he's still going to get 30 goals from this season. So as much as the doubters say it's a mistake signing him, every single manager in the Premier League would love to have him. Yeah, well, whisper it, but if United beat City on Saturday, they'll be level on points with them, which is unlikely, but I suppose stranger things have happened. Speaking of City, Seb, two games you know, without a win. Do you read anything into that tiny little blip? Not really. I mean, I think it's tempting to because in the Super Club era, we expect teams of City's size and talent just to dominate domestically and the really interesting games occur between each other. I just think it was slightly off. Laporte has that in his game. It's It feels like that was one in the, the one that's been in the post for a while. And <laughs> hey, listen, like I, I, I just want to um, uh, highlight the, uh, not about City, but about Palace. I thought Conor Gallagher was absolutely fantastic against yeah. City, but also like the part Michael Elise played in the second goal. Like if you watch his contribution, not just in the run, but also in the kind of the layoff, you got what it, for someone with almost no Premier League experience, fabulous bit of just, just a um, nice temperament in that situation because how often as a Palace player how often do you expect to be in a situation where you can put a game at Man City to bed that's a kind of pressurised scenario but no City I feel like this is what we do we, we have these events we have these we have these defeats that teams suffer and I suppose you could say much is, is true of Liverpool and Brighton over the weekend too where you think oh well this is this is so rare that we must take this opportunity to kind of ascribe this with an importance it probably doesn't have but I, I think City will click back into gear pretty quickly I'd have thought yeah, they're at home to Bruges on Wednesday and you know, effectively the, a win there would seal a top two place at least in the group because you've got Leipzig without a point at the moment. You know, we mentioned Laporte sending off. He'll be suspended for the United game. John Stone's now got a chance to uh, reassert himself, hasn't he, um, Eddie? Probably not. Probably bring Nathan Aki in, if I'm honest <laughs> with you. Uh, John Stone's can't seem to buy a minute of football right now at Man City, which I still find... Fascinating, especially considering how good I thought he was last season. I thought he was fantastic with Harry Maguire in the Euros. And all of a sudden, he doesn't get a minute of football. You almost feel like something's happening behind the scenes that we we maybe are not privy to. But look, hopefully John Stones comes back in. I think with John Stones, it's more of a confidence thing than anything. He's, He's clearly a talented player. There was talks of him leaving a couple of seasons ago to go to Spurs of all teams. And that would have been a good signing for Spurs. But no, I think John Stones will come in. Going back to, to Crystal Palace very quickly, Mike, I'm, I'm with Seba here. Uh, I think sometimes when one of the big favourites lose, you kind of almost like to bring out your Detective Colombo glasses yeah, and un- understand exactly. why. I, I thought Crystal Palace were fantastic yeah. and I thought Vieira's done such a good job. I watched him closely against Arsenal when he was so unlucky, even against Brighton as well. And it's a team that for the best part of four or five years have relied on Wilfred Zaha and all of a sudden they have other match winners. Exactly what Seb said, I thought Elise in that run and then it went back to Zahar and then back to Elisa and set up Conor Gallagher, who's looked absolutely fantastic. Ben Take looks like he's got a yard of pace again. Edouard coming from Celtic. I thought what he's building there, and I almost thought it was an impossible job. I honestly had them favourites to go down. Look, they still might be in trouble come the end of the season, but they say such exciting football. They really do. It's free-flowing. He's bringing youngsters through. They've got Eze coming back in a couple of months, who I think is going to add more competition to what they've got as well. Honestly, I think what he's doing there is fantastic. And I just wanted to single Vieira out because 
when he got the job, there were a lot of, you know, ums and ahs and question marks about can he really do it in the Premier League? And so far, so good for Vieira. Yeah. You know, in, in football terms, Sahar scored his 50th Premier League goal at the Etihad. You know, it's, it pains me because we've got to go back to this subject that we talk about endlessly. Mm. Afterwards, depressingly predictable racial abuse directed at Zaha. Now, he might say he's come to accept it, but why should he, Seb? <laughs> I think that's almost worse than the, the, the abuse itself, not, you know, in, in, in real terms, because, mm. but it's that a player thinks that way, you know, that they... I mean, I, I, I struggle to get my head around that, the idea that it's, I mean, it's kind of not shocking to anybody. Like a player can be racially abused and, and he's resigned to shrugging his shoulders and saying, well, it's just, you know, part and parcel of the game. God, it can't be part and parcel of the game. Like, how far gone are we if that's true? Like, it's it's a, I, I, don't, I don't profess to be an expert on how this happens, like sociologically, how this becomes a normal set of behaviours around football. I, I, I'm not going to, you know feign an understanding that I don't have, but something's very, very wrong if this is what a group of supporters reach for. Like mm. when, when a team suffers suffers some adversity, they're not doing things like shouting at their manager or, I don't know, tearing up their season tickets. I suppose you can't really tear season tickets up anymore, but, you know, the kind of the normal staples of disgruntled fandom, that stuff. And now it's, it's not even... Uh, <laughs> It just takes so little, doesn't it? It takes so little for someone to do this that it's that that really describes like how easily people cross that threshold and how like how how permissive football seems to be to the, sort of the attitudes that lurk in some of these people. That's really frightening. That you just mm. well because your team lost or because a player gave a seven out of ten performance instead of an eight out of ten performance. I remember when Stevie Bergwijn hit the post at Anfield last year. Right at the beginning of last season, and he got racially abused for that. I mean, like, there's no situation where, like, you 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 can say that's fine, but God, it takes nothing. Like, it's it's extraordinary, and I I don't know whether this has always been there, whether it's been exacerbated by social media, but it's still there in a lot of people clearly. And it's like, okay, minority this, and it's just you know, it's a small group of fans. Well, it's not a small group of people, though, is it? Because it happens with such regularity that it just can't be a small group of people. And yet it goes on and on and on. And I don't know who should be taking responsibility for it or what the answer for it is. But we're so... It, it's the acceptance of it. It's just amazing. Mm. Well, it was something that, that Wolf said afterwards where he said, speak to me when you take this issue seriously which struck me as exactly the right thing to say and the right challenging question to ask. And it is an almost impossible question, Addy, but without recycling the old ideas, what more can be done? It's a very difficult question just because I almost feel like we're, we're taking a football problem, forgetting it's a society issue and wanting football to clean up what is a problem in society. Or When Zaha speaks about it being sort of being the norm and being used to it, He's, he's right. I mean, I speak to a lot of black broadcasters who, who continually get abuse and they put it on social media and they take screenshots and they say, look at this, I've called a monkey this or the N word. Uh, and they're used to it. They're used to it. it. Almost, they're numb to it, if I'm honest with you. And now I've had my own fair share of abuse 
over the last sort of two, three years as well. And you do become a bit numb to it just because you think it's it's going to come again. You don't expect it not to happen again. And, and I think that's the problem that Wolf Zahar has right now. Hence why he's decided, you know, to not take the knee anymore. Hence why he's decided that that visual sort of protest isn't working just because, again, he continually gets abuse. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I used to sort of bang on about social media companies, particularly Twitter, doing a lot more, right? I mean... And and they need to, they need to take responsibility for it. But again, it goes down to education and, and almost the people. I think Darren Lewis was on here with myself a few months ago and he says it gets to a stage now where the punishment has to exceed the crime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he I think he used the phrase wielding an axe to break a nut or something similar like that, where you almost have to make a statement here, a bold statement of, okay, that's jail time. And again, that that for some might be too far, but that's what you have to do to deter people. If you want to say what you want to say, keep it in your house. Because if you do say it and it comes out in the air, this is what's going to happen. And to be fair, look, I, I speak to a lot of people, particularly Troy Townsend at Works of Kick It Out, and you know he gets racially abused and he continues to try and do what he does. But it, it's a difficult one. I remember being at the England-Italy game and the scenes there as soon as the young free boys missed the penalties and it was inevitability that they were going to get racially abused and that's the problem. It's inevitable. And uh, apologies for stuttering through this, Mike, but I don't know what the answer is anymore because it mm. happens too regular now for me to actually know how to stop it. Yeah, um, you know, depressingly, you know, I agree with almost every word you said there because... You know, it is it is almost like the intractable problem until there's a bigger picture change in attitude more than anything else. And and it's not just football. If you you know you look at what's going on in cricket at the moment, yeah, you know, with with Yorkshire County Cricket Club, yeah, it's societal. Without wishing to diminish the debate we've just had, you know, let's get back to the football side of things if we could, because it's a blessed mm. relief in many ways. <laughs> you know, you mentioned kind of Gallagher earlier, Seb. As you say, been outstanding for Palace. Is he playing himself in the Chelsea's team for next season? You'd hope so, because if he does, then you'd have faith in that kind of Chelsea meritocracy. I think what's important in this kind of situation is when a player performs at at such a high level on the doorstep of the fans from his loan club, then I feel like it creates a sort of situation where there becomes a clamour for his inclusion. I I don't know where he fits into this Chelsea team at the moment, or how he does. And certainly you wouldn't expect him to go back at the end of the season to drop into a starting position because that's just not really how it works. But you, you'd you hope he, he'd get a fair chance because there's nowhere else to go. If you perform really highly, and it's sort of a little bit reminiscent of the Ruben Loftus-Cheek situation a few years ago when he went off to Palace and, and played very, very well for most of the season. I think it becomes, I think that becomes question, that becomes a question for the players. He, he returns to his club and he trains with a high standard of player. He has to cope with fewer minutes. His place in the team isn't quite as secure. So I feel like you learn a lot about a footballer when he's out on loan. But then there's another test which comes. It's not just a question of, right, well, I play very, very well for Palace, but it's a little bit different when I go back to Stamford Bridge. And I feel like that's what happened to Loftus-Cheek a little bit, possibly. So that's in his future. But, I mean, he certainly played well enough to show that he is in that kind of Mason Mount bracket of player, different player to Mount, but certainly in the kind of, this is not someone that you just allow to to go off on loan somewhere distant for a few years. You actually do whatever you can to try and get the most out of this player's ability. Because clearly, look at him. I mean, he's making the case himself, isn't he? Mm. 
Chelsea are in Sweden on Tuesday. Addy playing Malmo, who've conceded a 11 in three group games. So presumably they're pretty much ideal opponents. I just wanted to focus, if we could, on on the impact of of the wing backs. Reese and Chilwell didn't have the fastest start to the season, but they are absolutely showing their worth now, aren't they? Yeah, they are firing. I was always confident that Reese James would, just because I think he's he has everything. He really does, and and I think potentially you're looking at and look, it'll probably be a battle for the next sort of ten years with him and Trent for that England right side position. But I think he's got absolutely everything in the book. He can score a goal as well as we saw on the weekend. He can he can pass. He's got strength. He's got pace. I was concerned with Chilwell, I have to be honest with you. I mean, Alonso came in and, and done well in that position. Doesn't have the the pace and the speed and maybe the strength of a Chilwell, but he's so cultured on the ball. And I actually think that Thomas Tuchel likes that. He likes the players to be comfortable on the ball. And I think Chilwell struggled to get that place back. He's now got it back and it's going to be difficult to dislodge him. But yeah, I think what they do is fantastic and you need it in the way in which Chelsea play. They they bomb up and down and they have energy for, for days. Obviously, it's almost like they're those complete Duracell battery packed sort of just lodged to them because it, it, they give you so much. They really do. They're asked to do so much as well in the way in which Thomas Tuchel plays them. But yeah, I, I think not just them, I think Kante and Jorginho in the midfield, uh, he, he seems to he, he seems to like Kante Tuchel, but he almost seems to be the one that when someone can be dropped, he gets dropped. But I think them in the midfield alongside sort of Reese James and Chilwell's fantastic. Aspilicueta, when he comes in, does a good job as well. They've got so much strength and depth, Chelsea. That, that's what's scary. You look at what's missing. You look at the players that they don't have. And the fact they can still go to Newcastle and put three past them and just look comfortable and put seven past Norwich, and that could have been 10 or 11. That They've got enough strength and depth to compete in every competition. And I wouldn't be shocked if not only they win one, but win two. I really, and I mean that. I mean, I think they could do what Man City have done for the last couple of seasons and really compete on all fronts. Well, they're five points clear in the Premier League. And, you know, to amplify your point there, Addy, you know, they beat Newcastle without Lukaku, Werner, Mount, Pulisic, Kovacic. Only three goals conceded in the Premier League so far. That's another sign of Tuchel's impact, isn't it, Seb? Big time. So, so impressive. So impressive. And not to hark on, but this is a really good example of um, why you shouldn't always be too quick to condemn like hasty sackings. Remember where Frank Lampard had that group of players. Okay, it's been developed in the in the in the time since, but European chat from sort of almost heading towards not quite mid table but upper mid table to a Champions League final within six months. It's pretty impressive. And yeah, everything he does obviously is. I think I think what's interesting about him is that he came with a reputation and he deserved it. I mean, he had issues with the boardroom at, at Borussia Dortmund. There was a little bit of a political falling out and a bit of political tension at, at PSG. And I think people looked at that, I certainly did, and saw kind of some of the headstrong characters at executive level at Chelsea and thought, well, this is going to have a very short time span. But in the same way that players mature and develop, perhaps this is Tuchel growing into his managerial career and growing into his time at the very highest level of the game. And I think he's managed these resources very, very well. And that's been one of the keys. Mike, you've just um, listed the players who were unavailable. And that kind of unwittingly describes just how much he has to juggle and how well he's done it. And I think that's kind of one of the sort of the the, the, the quieter successes he's had at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, well, and that was against um, Newcastle, Addy. You know, there's some talk of Newcastle making an appointment, manager appointment this week sometime. Who do they get? Harry Potter? <laughs> 
but they, they might very well need it. It's very interesting to, to know what Newcastle are going to do. Obviously, everyone was, I'll say excited, but everyone was excited and understanding what, what the process was going to be at St. James's Park. Were they going to bring in a, a, a UV like a Hollywood type manager as a Dan or Conte? Were they going to bring in someone in the interim, almost like what Man City did with the appointment of Mark Hughes many, many years ago? I don't know. I still don't even know if they're going to go big in the January transfer window. I think they need to, obviously because of their position. But how attractive are they as a club? Yes, financially, we understand the package they can give players and managers. But I, I still don't know what kind of manager they're going to go for. There have been talks about Steven Gerrard, possibly. I'm not quite sure if it's a job that he can handle right now. And Frank Lampard, there you kind of your you mid-tier Hollywood managers. I thought Brendan Rodgers would have been a fantastic choice, but he's almost ruled himself out of it as well. But yeah, they, they need help, Newcastle. I mean, it would be a disaster for them to have had this takeover and for them to get relegated. Yes, they would clearly dominate the championship, but this isn't what the Saudi group wanted when they took over Newcastle. So look, they need someone in that understands, I think maybe even knows the Premier League, uh, knows how to get out of trouble. You might know where I'm going here. Just to almost, oh God, just to no, save. Don't do it. Don't say <laughs> I'm going to stop myself, Seb. I'm going to stop myself just to survive this season. <laughs> and then we'll see what they do next. Social media does not forgive stuff like that. Don't say it. <laughs> I stopped myself mid-sentence. <laughs> Oh, that's what I did. We've got fearless campaigners here on this show, chaps. Um, okay, uh, a manager on the up then, Graham Potter, creating an identity, following a plan. There's no panic when they went, uh, well, could have gone 3-0 down at Anfield. Far too good for a Tottenham, sorry, Seb. He's right on the way up, isn't he? And it was interesting, I thought, Jurgen Klopp saying, look, people, and he was talking about Brighton, people don't respect their quality. And he was right, wasn't he? Absolutely right. I felt like the, the telling moment in that game, although it didn't count, was the Trossard goal, which would have made it 3-2 had he not been ruled offside. Because I think, firstly, the three positive surprise performance. Firstly, you go 2-0 down at Anfield, and I think a lot of sides just jack it in for the day and just think, okay, fine, let's keep the score down. Second thing is, you get back to 2-2, and then you don't panic and just retreat into your own box. You keep playing. And Brighton very, very nearly got the reward for it. Obviously, Liverpool had a little bit of a renaissance at 2-2, and I think they, they got to about sort of 58% possession in the, in the, um, the remaining minutes after the, the, the equaliser was scored. But Brighton continued not just to lump it into the corners and to chase and to sort of press with a, well, not really press, but just sit in a low block. They actually worked their way out of their zones, committed a few men to their attacks, and sort of had a belief that it describes something. It describes a... Self-belief is, is very trite um, and, and cliche, but it, it, it just a, a conviction maybe in what's happening, the coaching approach and a trust in the processes that have been installed there. And that's a great thing. And I I don't know, like, I mean, I, I think Brighton have had a little bit of a PR problem because last year they were the XG team and people kind of had their fun and people, people who probably didn't know as much as they might do about XG kind of sort of misinterpreted that a little bit. Whereas now... Yeah, like you look at the quality of their football. I think, you know, the, the Man City loss damaged them a little bit, but I think anybody can fall foul of a quick burst of power from a team like that. It's just what happens. But I don't, it's just, it's been a wonderful job. If you think about where Brighton have come from, and I don't just mean newly promoted, I mean sort of back in the day where they've come from and the selling of the ground and the supporter protests and just some of the characters that 
those supporters have had to put up with. There's a, there's, there are some, there's some great literature on this actually. A great article in 442 as well, which um, I read a couple of years ago. So check that out. But it's a great story. It's a great, great story, and it's it's good for them. Good for them. Mm, next visitors to Anfield are uh, Atletico Madrid. Obviously, it's a fixture with with resonance. Addy caters out on Wednesday. The thought sort of forms is history repeating itself a bit here with consistent injuries to one area of the team you know in this case it's the midfield rather than last season's defense it is it's um it's a massive problem i think this for jurgen klopp and i don't sort of understate that um just because it's the engine room i mean a lot of people will continually talk about the back four and the front three but it's the engine room of what was last season or a couple of seasons before that fabinho henderson and Wijnaldum. And that got Liverpool through games that you haven't replaced Gina Wijnaldum at all. And that surprised me in the summer just because he was the most consistent midfielder for Liverpool in terms of his injury record, which was probably, which was non-existent. You look at all the other players in that midfield and Jordan Henderson, injury history, James Milner, obviously now out with a hamstring injury. Young Harvey Elliott, who started the season well, injury. Fabinho injured. Cater, I don't think, and I stand to be corrected, I don't think Cater's ever played four games in a row for Liverpool. And that's because of injury. It's not because of talent, because clearly when we got him, he was a talented player. Curtis Jones himself coming back from injury. So look, it's a problem. It's an issue. And again, it's one that I thought would have been resolved in the summer. It's funny because you speak about Brighton, there was a lot of talk about Liverpool and Basuma. There's a lot of talk about Liverpool and Tielemans. And I felt like one of those players should have come in just because it's it's an issue area and it's the worst thing about it now it's um almost like Liverpool's defence last season I think that's about the seven or eight different combination of that midfield three this season so you get no consistency with it as well Oxlade-Chamberlain came in and look looks energetic and but again we know what's going to happen next unfortunately and I, and I feel sorry for him because he's such a, a young talented player but he can't play more than three four games either so yeah it, it's an issue that I think Liverpool might address in the January transfer window I think they might have to just because you can't rely on James Milner to play with the energy he does in centre midfield, maybe at left back, possibly centre midfield. You can't, and you can't now rely on, unfortunately, on the fitness of Fabinho or Jordan Henderson. Mm. In the context of injuries and everything else, Seb, are Arsenal feeling the benefit, in a strange way, the lack of European involvement? It, it allows almost a more measured transition to a younger team with a definable pattern good old 4-4-2 yeah maybe I mean I think it also allows for more time on the training pitch which certainly seems to have been a a positive I don't know I mean the European football there there, there are good examples but then I always feel like the the, the sort of hidden benefit of maybe not the Champions League but certainly the Europa League and the early and the Conference League is that you give players an opportunity to work their way into the team you don't ask they make the jump between under 19 or under 23 football straight into senior football and I think that's a that's a good thing I don't know if it, it it's relevant to what's happened there, but I, I really like Ramsdale. I'm, you know, like a lot of people, I, I think <laughs> yeah. um, mm. I think uh, it was very easy, and I certainly did to misunderstand what Arsenal were trying to do over the summer with their goalkeeping position. And I think what we've seen is obviously the value is if his technical goalkeeping, brilliant save from uh, that free kick over the weekend, but also his personality. He's a bit of an oddity in a in a, in a nice way. He's um, and I've said this a couple of times on, on a different podcast, but I. Arsenal, Arsenal's goalkeeper for a few years has just been a guy, hasn't it? A, a, a player, <laughs> yeah. a person yeah. from from football world. 
Like, and there's no, there's been no definition to the role in the way that there was with, I'd probably go back to Jens Lehmann for someone like that. You know, a, a, a bit of a strange guy, a good goalkeeper, but, you know, and obviously had some less than positive comments in the German media over the last few months. But Ramsdale feels like someone who, A, has the shoulders for a for that position and also kind of helps create a little bit of definition. Like, this is a, a department, Arsenal's defence has taken an awful lot of criticism over the years. And now it's kind of this guy that's comfortable to, you know, joking with the crowd and, and sort of volleying back their insults and that kind of stuff. And it feels positive. It feels sort of, it feels like it makes some kind of statement about what Arsenal want to be. And I feel like that is very, very important to this team's future because it's not good enough just to, you know, talk in cliche about what Arteta might do and, you know, process. And because these things aren't actually real. I mean, you have to wait for their effect to take place on the pitch. And I feel like this is a small but important part of it, I think. And the fans have certainly taken to him, which is extremely important, clearly. Yeah, well, he's a galvanising personality, isn't he? And I suppose what he's also doing, he's making his natural rivals at, at England level, you know, someone like Dean Henderson at Manchester United, consider their career options. That win at Leicester, who are at home to Spartak Moscow on Thursday, Addy, again, that threw up one or two almost you know, increasing issues at Leicester. That lack of concentration, consistency. James Madison. Mm. Am I being unfair when I look at him now and think this boy is destined to underachieve? Oh, um, harsh. That's a strong yeah, words. yeah, uh, yeah. Strong words. <laughs> strong words, Mike. Um, the coffee was strong this morning, I gather. Um, <laughs> it, I, I understand what you mean because there, there was there was clearly a time a year and a half ago, potentially when you know, people were comparing Madison to Grealish and the emergence of Foden and he was kind of sort of, okay, England have so much jewels in the crown here and then all of a sudden he's dropped off. It could be because of issues off the pitch, which um, uh, are clearly affecting him in the relationship with Brendan Rodgers, which I hope now is is a good one. But there is still such a talented player there, mm. a very, very talented. I watched them in Europe and obviously Patson Dak is going to get all the plaudits for scoring four goals but I thought Madison was absolutely fantastic he's just he's intelligence knowing to to drop deep he has a turn of pace almost like a Phil Foden actually is that yard of extra pace just to get away they're not blistering but it's a yard of pace and I mean it looked like he was going to score one of the goals of the weekend until Ramsdale turned into Peter Schmeichel so I think there's still there's still something there it might be a move away, potentially. I mean, he was linked with a move to Arsenal, wasn't he? But I still think, look, what is he, 22, 23? I think there's still a bit left in Madison before we before we write him off as one of the the, the failures. I think there's something there, but I think he's still, he clearly needs to sort his attitude out. But in terms of a footballer, I think he's very, very talented. Yeah, he's very interesting. He's a very good interviewee. <laughs> yes, he is, uh, yes. But I just, you know, as I say, there's just something about him that... that you know the big player, or, or you know, there is a, the, 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 there isn't a chink, is there? And I, in the armor, and I, I just see little bits of that. In terms, it's not about his talent; it's about his his personality. Yeah. And I suppose in that sense, Sarah, if we're looking for a player who is an absolute raging certainty, it's Declan Rice <laughs> at West Ham. I suppose the only issue is how long can they keep him for? Yeah, because it feels like what West Ham are changing, not before time. It's taken an awful while to, to kind of to get the balance right, London Stadium. Rice is, Rice is quite interesting because it, 
you have a different impression of him depending on whether you watch him play for England or whether you play for West Ham because his West Ham brief is much broader. And I think you saw that for the, um, I think it was the the first goal when to surges up the field, pushes the play out to the wide, the wide area and then um, Johnson scores the goal. But I think um, in terms of like where he, well, his place is in English football, I think it's quite unique because they don't have a player like that really. I haven't had a, a footballer who does some of these things for quite a long time. Calvin Phillips does some of them, slightly different way. You kind of had um, Michael Carrick, but different style of footballer because he he was a bit more static and a bit more kind of lethargic. And he, he had a kind of um, an ease to his play, which which Rice doesn't necessarily possess. But really interesting, and, and he's one of those guys that he, he gets better. He gets better. He's adjusted to a lot of things around him. And you've seen what's happened to him at West Ham. As they've, as they've put better pieces around him, as they've developed a more coherent side, you've seen sort of his, his ability flower and you've seen him kind of grow and influence in that midfield. Very, very interesting. I remember what, the first time I, I watched him was, I think, in a, a League Cup game at Wembley. And a guy in the press box I know was, was talking about, you know, how much he rated him. And this is, you know, it's a really, really, really good player. He played at centre-half and he was rubbish. Absolutely rubbish. So it's just more, <laughs> more West Ham hot air yet again, you know. Like, but no, uh, it was me who was wrong. He's a he's a fantastic footballer and um, getting better all the time, which is exciting. Yeah, the, the West Ham are in Genk on on Thursday, Addy. They're looking valid contenders for the Europa League, aren't they? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm lucky enough to live right next to the London Stadium, and so I decided to purchase myself a season ticket just to go and watch them play. I, I think. What David Moyes has done there deserves so much plaudits. It really does. And Seb's right. It's the pieces around Declan Rice as well now. Jared Bowen has got his scoring boots on again. Ben Rahman looks like he, almost like a, a version of Riyad Mahrez where he wants to kind of take you on and drop a shoulder. And Antonio up front as well. But I think that partnership between Declan Rice and Suchek in the midfield, probably one of the best centre midfield partnerships there is. I mean, some people might argue that it's the best centre midfield partnership. I'd argue Jorginho and Kante. But... Everything seems to be correct. Kurt Zuma coming in in that defensive shield with Ogbonna. I mean, they almost look impossible to get past. Fabianski, I think, was almost an underrated keeper, maybe because he's been around for so long. You almost forget about he's what he's got. My only worry for West Ham is the balance of Europe and sort of a Premier League campaign. I thought last season was um, a flash in the pan. I was proven wrong because obviously they're fourth right now, but the, the, the strength and depth scares me. And you only hope that... Golden Sullivan can look at what David Moyes has done and say, OK, look, let's see if we can get Lingard. Whatever United want, let, let's see if we can pair. Because I still think that if Antonio is not scoring, I know they scored four against Villa, but if Antonio is not scoring, who else is? You look at what's going to come off the bench and Yarmolenko doesn't give me much confidence. So I think if they can maybe just add one or two in the January transfer window, then I do think they can compete on both fronts. If they can't, I think there might be an injury or two away from it all collapsing. But so far, so good for West Ham. Really impressed with what David Moyes has done. Yeah, and there's always um, you know, another side to the coin, to the shiny coin, isn't there, Seb? You know, West Ham's performance at Villa Park was exceptional, but it also highlighted, well, Villa's fourth defeat on the bounce, the increasing pressure on Dean Smith. He needs a result at Southampton on Friday, doesn't he? I would have thought so. At the same time, I think that's terribly unfair on him because, firstly, because of how far he's taken Villa, not just over the past few years, but you think about what Villa were when they left the Premier League, when they were relegated, and how long that took and how dispiriting that 
that process took. And also how, how, how empty Villa Park was when they did it. Like Dean Smith has had a, a tremendous effect on where that club is and how it sees itself. At the same time, also, anytime, whenever you, whenever you sell your best player, at least a player around whom a team is built, you can handle that really well, as Villa did. I think their, um, their communication during that episode was, was exemplary. But you still have to rebuild all the mechanics, even if you assemble a new batch of good players with the, with the revenue. And it's difficult and it doesn't excuse entirely what's happened. This isn't just about Grealish because I think defensively there are some issues at Villa, clearly. And it doesn't absolve him of blame. But I think you, I mean, it, we've ranted about kind of how archaic it is to, to implore um, teams to show patience. But this is perhaps one of those instances where you think this guy's done tremendous good for the team in a very short space of time. Like, you know, a, a, a two years ago, finishing 17th was a great success for Villa contextually so let's not be premature I hope not given given what Dean Smith is and given how his life has been entwined with Villa you'd hope that there was a little bit of um little bit of, of hesitation there do you agree Eddie I do any manager that loses sort of the heart and soul of the club not just their best player but the way in Jack Grealish the way in which he rallies up the fans to lose him was always going to be difficult this season yes they I think have recruited well. I do, I do think the recruits have maybe not bedded in like you would have wanted. I think Buendia is going to take time to settle. I think Bailey's a good acquisition. I think he's going to take time as well. But I do think he deserves some time, Dean Smith. Again, let's not forget, this is the team that stayed up by the skin of their teeth a couple of seasons ago. I sometimes feel like fans want everything now. It's almost like the Bielsa issue at Leeds. They want everything now. I think almost survival and continually build on that for Villa is a good thing. I think they've got a very good squad. I, I do think there is defensive issues, especially now with Conte being out. Um, after that red card, Tyron Mings has had a mare of a season. It's not worked out well for him, but they've got a good squad. They've got a good squad. They've got a good manager. And I think they have to persist with him. And I'd hate to sort of sort of come back on in a couple of weeks after the international break and Dean Smith has gone. Because I think anyone coming in isn't going to do much a better job. So yeah, I think they need to stick with Dean Smith. I'd like to finish by going back to where we started with Spurs. New managers can be fashion statements. They can also be human shields for under-pressure owners. Bear that in mind as word seeps out that Spurs are talking to Antonio Conte. He would be a fascinating, if flawed, appointment. Not quite sure what has changed since Spurs last spoke to him, about four months ago. And Manchester United, remember, were closely linked to him last week. Football certainly moves in mysterious ways. And because of that, I want to give thanks to Addy and Seb for their insight. And I want to thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.